Romancers. Oh, oh. stop. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> oh, God. Well, hi, friends. How you doing? It's been a bit. Um, we're happy that you're here listening. So welcome to Contagious Curiosity with Kat and Lainey. I'm Lainey. I'm Kat. And yeah, we've got a really fun episode for you today. I'm pretty excited about it. It's near and dear to our hearts. Yeah. We are going to be talking about some awesome people in Maine folklore. Well, yours yours I probably mean, is really awesome. I'm not quite sure if I want to classify mine as awesome just quite yet, but I it has its moments. He's done something not a whole lot of other people have done. And in, in which case is one of a kind. very awesome. Very, yeah, one of a kind. One of a kind for sure. How was your week, lady? It was good. It's good. Um, you know, hanging out in California, seeing the family. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's really nice. Quite envious. Really nice. I still haven't been over to the West Coast yet myself. Still blows me away that you haven't met my brother. Yes. Just, yeah. In the entirety of our lives together, it's just it was just wrong place, wrong time. Even when he Always. was local in Maine, I think we were at a phase in our life where we weren't uh, connected as tightly as we are now. But I know enough oh, about yeah, your brother for sure, <laughs> and I'm sure he knows enough about me. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. <laughs> so during today's episode, um, Lainey's going to start off by giving us a little a little intro to one of our more famous Maine folklore folks now with any folklore it all has some shred of truth and in her case i believe it has a tremendous amount of truth um it's only truth it's only truth yeah (laughs) i know it's hard when you say folklore because there's always some kind of bit of a fantasy in there but um i will say that i am looking very much forward to uh your your story yeah i'm excited to teach you about her so today i'm going to be talking about fly rod crosby who was an incredible uh main sportswoman in the 1800s she late 1800s and she pioneered really the marketing of Maine tourism and getting people to come out and see its beauty and she was a fantastic fly fisher woman and just just she was great she was amazing did a really a lot of incredible things and i'm excited to tell you more about it absolutely and to be honest with you i absolutely love fly fishing And it's Mm -hmm. something, it's something that you either know how to do or you need to know somebody who knows how to do it so they can teach you how to do it (laughs) properly. Um, Tying flies, it actually started with me when I I started tying flies. It was a way to be creative and to get that part of myself out. Um, And boy, was it just amazingly fun. I remember going on trips to L.L. Bean and buying the Mm -hmm. like tufts of of whitetail deer hair so that I could just wind it into these tiny little projects. Um, Oh, yeah. So I'm really looking forward. I know. Yeah. And it's remarkable. And those things last forever. And I tell you what, that's that's what it's all about is is the craftsmanship and the performance between the, the fly itself and the whole process of whipping that thing around you can't it's not like fishing it's not like fishing at all there's a lot of there's a lot of ins and outs there's a performance to it so okay oh, yeah you gotta have finesse you gotta sure. quite a bit of finesse it and makes some, it that much more heartbreaking when a fish eats your fly though because you made it yourself and you put you all that hard work into it and you just you didn't even get the fish at least it's organic <laughs> it's gone <laughs> 
All right. Well, I'm yes, ready. The hook is very organic for them to be swallowing. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm pretty excited to hear about this. So in this episode, really, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be telling our story back and forth. Lainey's going to be teaching me something that I just don't know, and I'm hoping More that um, I'm hoping that I as well teach her something that she doesn't know. My story um, is about a Mr. Christopher Knight. Um, who has actually in more recent times become a, a main folklore um, as somebody that you might have heard or might not have heard as the North Pond Hermit. Um, mm. Uh, mm. Yeah, so and so the difference, I, I, I do enjoy the differences between the time periods that we're going to be representing here because Christopher Knight is very much um, a modern figure, um, though he probably would not want to see it that way himself. Um <laughs> But it's, and there are songs about him. There are yeah. books. I'm pretty sure there's like a documentary coming out or so. Yeah, like, yeah. It's insane how much it's being able to watch um, somebody become like a folklore, like hero, legend. I don't know within their life, within their yeah, life, within while our, they're alive, our yeah. lifetimes. Yeah, which is really cool. But it, um, you know, most of the time you hear stories like this and it's hundreds of years ago or so, and we get to watch it happen. It's, it's I don't know how awesome. you're. I don't know how your story ends, but at least there's a, a finality. I'm assuming to your story where mine is still I mean, um, mine is still it being ends in death. Oh well, that I mean, if there's any finality to life, it's, it's, it's death. Over a hundred years ago. But um, Christopher Knight's story is continuing to be told, um, and of course, after I give you a little bit of extra info that maybe you know I didn't know, and maybe you didn't know until we we talk about it today, mm-hmm. um, we can judge for ourselves and those listening can can judge for themselves yes. um, about our new main modern folklore legend. So. I basically know the very bare minimum of his story and cut like I did it's too. It's hard to say what is truth because everybody has got their story from because he's close to our area. So growing up, you know, everybody's got like an uncle or a grandfather that's like, "Oh, well, I've, you know, I ran into them or I heard this or I heard that or he stole from me." Yeah. So it's interesting. It'll be fun to see what is uh, more truth. Yeah. And knowing that there is an actual book written about this man. Well, the first thing, when I was doing my research on him, I it was quite eye-opening for me to realize that this had all come to pass in 2013. Like, the discovery mm-hmm. of him and, you know, the realizing of the story and what will follow through. Um, but 2013, that was nearly a decade ago, uh, to Lainey and I. This honestly felt like a couple of years ago, and so yeah. not even yeah. a couple of years ago. So it is it is quite awe inspiring to see what has happened since then as well um, with his story. For sure, yeah. Oh, and to get into what we will be drinking today, oh, because yeah. that is definitely a part of our podcast. We would not be here without it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today I'm drinking an Allagash White, which uh, we are drinking main beers today so Allagash is in portland maine and uh they do they have over a dozen dozens of beers mm. available for you they've been brewing in maine since 1995 i'm pretty sure it's one guy who started the entire thing and he like hand welded um like a bunch of tanks together and was just like well i guess i got a brewery now <laughs> i mean if that, if that doesn't sound it's... mainer i don't know what does <laughs> i guess this is me now <laughs> <laughs> and i love their slogan too it's it's from maine with love and they're everywhere i mean like kat was saying earlier we uh when we were flying back from 
Disney, they offered Allagash beer at the uh, airport in Florida. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. They've, they've made it all across the country. They're really good. They usually do Belgian-style uh, beer. I think that's almost everything that they make. And this Belgian white is really delicious. It is um, really good. I, I love yeah. that beer, to be honest it's with you. It's one of those beers that's really good in the winter or the summer. That I, I have a, I'm very seasonal when it comes to it. Like, I can't have heavy beer in the summer. Like, I feel like most people that way oh i enjoy i enjoy my heavy beers all year round when we're outside especially if we're going down the river and stuff like this oh well i can be fair yeah and that we spend a lot of time outside in the summer months and so i I definitely can't be drinking heavy heavy stuff but this is good all year long i love it it's very yummy fantastic and i am drinking a nut brown ale from oak pond brewery which is actually um in one of my hometowns i have multiple hometowns in my opinion um so oak pond brewery actually started in skowhegan maine in 1996 um absolutely it was awesome um they have been around uh but i honestly didn't start drinking their beer until about a decade ago um when they started to disperse it a lot more in their local stores and such so it was one of those companies where you either knew where to get it uh you buy it from Mm -hmm. there but they didn't necessarily distribute it um as widely as they do now and the nut brown ale is my favorite um technically for my sister's wedding um my my folks had bought a keg of this and this is what this was the first time that I had ever had it and boy they are they are definitely known for their dark ales uh, for their for their brown beers but they are incredibly mm. flavorful they are light on the belly they do not hurt and there's not a tremendous amount of hop oh, yeah. flavor in so many of them I know some folks like a double hop I know Lainey you know has oh, yeah. yeah you I, I remember you with the double bags remember oh, those yeah. years? I was just about it was funny I was just about to talk about the double bags so the like, double bag was, yeah Oh God! Mm, give me some long trail any day. I which, which when I first had those, I was not my it was not my flavor at all. And then nowadays, I prefer a nice hoppy beer. But Oak Pond um, has a tremendous amount of delicious selections that uh, honestly fit every occasion. So, and it's a great company, and it's a local company to Thanks. us. And yeah, oh yeah, very, right up the road. Yeah, right up the road. Used to be right up the road for me. Um, yeah. In New Jersey. <laughs> I'm sure there's a <laughs> lot of delightful beers there. There's just so many oh, more to choose from. Yeah. Nick's favorite place to go. They specialize in sour beers. And let me tell you. Ugh. I fucking hate them. <laughs> I hate them. I can't do it. I can't do it. The they first time I ever do, had a sour beer. They do make a lot of other um, awesome beers that they're, they're really good. But man, are those sour beers just the worst in my opinion. But he loves them. He like he gets the fruitiest, most disgusting. You think that I I I love everything sour too, but I cannot, I can't stomach it. My beer is not meant to be sour. That means it's gone bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you want to get into the episode? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Teach me something. All right. Here we go. So fly rod Crosby. Displaying an athleticism and individualism uncommon for women in her time, she used her celebrity to tirelessly promote the Maine wilderness in her writings and travels. So a lot of the information that I've gotten today was uh, partly from the book Fly Rod Crosby, The Woman Who Marketed Maine, written by Julia A. Hunter and Earl Shettleworth Jr., Um, an article on the New New England Historical Society, Maine Memory Network, and that was an entry by Ben Godso and the American Museum of Fly Fishing, um, all of their 
websites is where I, I pulled a lot of information from. Fantastic, yeah. Cornelia Thurza, which is just mm, that name. That's a good name. Thurza Crosby was born November 10th, 1854 to Lemwell Crosby and Thurza Cottle Porter Crosby in Phillips, Maine, the home of Rangeley Lakes. Her father suffered from poor health and died of tuberculosis when Crosby was only two. Both she and her brother Ezekiel suffered from poor health for most of their young lives. Actually, she, she struggled with her health her, her entire life. Um, and to cure, to cure her frequent bouts of sickness, Crosby was prescribed to spend as much time in the main fresh air as possible. Wouldn't that be nice if your doctor nowadays was just like, get the fuck outside. Well, to be honest with you, that's probably that's probably what most people do get as advice. But many people now are just like, it doesn't work. It It doesn't work. I spent five minutes out there and I still feel the same. That or (laughs) I work 65 hours a week. When the hell am I supposed to get outside? (laughs) (laughs) But shockingly, it always seemed to help her regain her health. Unfortunately, Ezekiel passed away in 1868 at the age of 23 also from tuberculosis. Um, she had inherited $600 in her teens, which is roughly around $13,000 in today's money. She spent the money on two years of schooling in St. Catherine's Hall, which is an Episcopal girls' finishing school in Augusta, Maine. In her 20s, Crosby's health continued to fail her, causing her to take weeks to a month off of work at a time just to recuperate. And in the mid-1870s, Crosby came down with a lung ailment that she was not expected to survive from. In a desperate attempt to save her life, Crosby was brought to the foot of Mount Blue for a time in the hopes that the healing powers of nature would save her life. Miraculously, not only did she overcome her sickness, but this was the very first place and time that she caught a speckled beauty, which is what she affectionately called trout. From then on, it was unlikely to find Cornelia Crosby anywhere but out in Maine's wilderness. Trout is Cros- delicious. Oh my god, it's so good. Yeah, for it's those so who good. haven't had it, it's worth it. We um, we used to own a pond uh, called Otter Pond. and My dad and I would go up there all the time and uh, go fly fishing. And usually we'd start like a little fire there afterwards mm. at, because, you know, if the sun has gone down, we've got to get off the pond. It's... There's a shocking amount of warden, game wardens out there. And so we um, would just cook up the trout like right on the little fire. Oh, my gosh. It was so incredible. Did you ever have a Strips problem with the little it. bones? Oh, mm-hmm. No, I just ate them. You or just ate them. Yeah, because they're so... You need to. Because they're, they're small enough. They're, they're so small and so delicate enough that sometimes you don't even realize you're eating a bone. So Yeah, every once in a while, like, stick in the roof of your mouth and you're like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the worst. It's still one of the juiciest fish that I've ever cooked. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Crosby became incredibly skilled when it came to outdoor sports and thrived in the environment. She became a master fly fisherwoman, markswoman, and guide. Having received her first bamboo fly rod in 1878 from nearby Farmington rod maker Charles E. Wheeler, Crosby became a rangely fixture during the fishing seasons and had a reputation of, su- of being a successful angler. It was often told of a record she had set in 1878 of landing 52 trout in 44 minutes. What? 52 trout in 44 minutes. Well, during that, during that period of time, I can imagine it because right now we're struggling to keep fish stocked in our no, lakes. No, that's insane. And ponds. That's yeah. an insane it is, it is. It that's, is a bit insane. That's, that's a ridiculous amount. That's more than a fish per minute. 
<laughs> just whipping them out like a cartoon character. Whipping them out. Go in the barrel. Go in the barrel. Go in the barrel. The 1800s. Uh, she also had the notable distinction of being the first woman on record to shoot a caribou. Oh, and I forgot to mention, this what? woman stands six feet tall in her stocking feet. This is not like a little dainty woman. This girl is getting out there, and she is she's, she's hunting, she's tracking, she is fishing with the freaking best of them, and just like breaking records. And yeah, the First model woman main on record woman to shoot a yeah, even more. She was like the nation's like, well, yeah, no, not the entire nation did not appreciate a sportswoman as much as Maine would. That's true. Yeah. Well, and they might have in other areas, but probably more local to them, where to us, she does seem like the, the, when we talk about a a main woman, yeah, when we talk about a main woman, we talk about just a beastly woman who is able to hold her own and also still look beautiful. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, she, she always, she still wore her dresses and everything the whole time she Mm -hmm. was out there. Dang. Uh, she began to write up stories about her fishing adventures, which she submitted to O.M. Moore at the Phillips uh, Phonograph, which is a local newspaper. Moore gave her the nickname Flyrod, and Flyrod's notebook was born. It was a lighthearted and loving account of fishing adventures and misadventures with information about where to stay and what the sporting camps were like. Her nickname Flyrod was in common use by 1886, and Flyrod's notebook became a syndicate column appearing in newspapers in New York, Boston, and Chicago. Not only did her column help inform the local outdoorsmen of the area, but it started to attract tourists to central Maine. Her romantic descriptions of Maine's natural beauty paired with the enticing hunting and fishing opportunities the land had to offer helped make Maine a coveted destination for sportsmen. She caught the attention of the Maine Central Railroad. Wow. I don't know why that was so hard to get out. I can see your face, and that's what made it even better. You just look like a turtle. (laughs) 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 Anyway. (laughs) Oh, we're doing good. All right. I love it. She caught the attention of the Maine Central Railroad, which was looking to replace its lost freight business with tourists. Mm. The railroad paid Flyrod to promote Maine's outdoor industry. It was Flyrod who came up with the slogan, Maine, the nation's playground. She organized Maine's... Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. I I think I told you earlier when we were talking about this, uh, this episode, but for those of you who don't, know me i'm an extremely emotional person like i i just i cry at the drop of the hat of a hat when i think something is beautiful or you know just awesome or i'm really excited about it it's not even out of sadness i just can't contain my emotions and they sometimes come out in tears and so just doing the research and reading up about her i was just like oh god i'm just getting it's getting dusty especially knowing how close to home it hits yeah exactly yeah it's just so freaking awesome she organized Maine's exhibit at the first annual sportsman's show at Madison Square Garden in New York in 1895. At the second annual show, she caused a sensation. She wore a Paris-inspired green leather hunting outfit with a skirt that stopped short at mid-calf. Mid-calf cat. Oh, mid-calf. the drama. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the sensation. <laughs> she had a matching tall green lace-up boots and tailored jacket with a red sweater and a peaked red and green hat like 
I just, I've seen a picture of it too. She just looks so badass. Oh, I love it. And I uh, just, uh. <laughs> She attended many outdoor trade shows in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, where she regaled visitors with stories about the Maine woods. A full-size log cabin was erected at the center of the exhibit in 19, 1895 and affectionately nicknamed Camp Maine Central. There were exhibits of taxidermy, hunting and fishing gear from all over the state. And over the course of the next 10 years, Fly Rod would attend several such exhibits all over the Northeast. Um, and she also had live trout and salmon that were sent to these exhibits, also to help promote the railroad, being like, hey, look, look at these live fish that this railroad was able to bring all the way from Maine. You know what I love? All the way over to here in Philadelphia. I love that even, like, during this time, having, a, a, like, a representative that is a, that is a female was so yeah. uncommon and that she was doing so well for herself. It just reminds me of the time and where she was and how successful that yeah. being a woman. I mean, authors up until even, you know, 30, 40 years ago were using male, you know, male mm -hmm. names or, you know, male pronouns to be able to yeah. like sell their books. And so this woman was just living her best life and thriving authentically. And I love it. And she was kind of hidden with her nickname, Fly Rod, with when fly, it came with to the, the columns I could see that, that she wrote. But then when it came to the, like, exhibits where she was traveling... She was actually she was, physically there. It was, like, there. her and one other guy. Exactly. People were forced to look at her in her short skirt, you know, that came <laughs> at mid-calf. And, you know, and she would do demonstrations of uh, fly fishing and showing everybody, like, how, you know what it's like to be up in Maine. And so they had to look at her in the face and see her for what she was, you know, and see that she was this powerful Maine woman that could kick some ass in the forest. <laughs> it's just, uh, right. uh. so yeah, like, like I was saying, she, uh, she gets me emotional. <laughs> oh, I lost my, my place. <laughs> oh, it's okay. No, take your time. It's me constantly. Yeah, so, um, yeah, <laughs> I like it, though. I want, I want to be interrupted. So, yeah, over the course of the next 10 years, she would attend several such exhibits all over the Northeast. And during 1896 Sportsman Show, she met Annie Oakley. And they became best friends for, like, or not best friends, but, like, friends for the rest of their lives. Oh, really? Freaking awesome. Yeah. Who She was the incredible sharpshooter. Yep. So it's just these two fantastic insanely talented women in history coming together too which is just so awesome love it during the summer of 1893 flyrod caught 2500 trout that's 2500 trout in one summer and she called it the happiest and best year of her life oh right the Maine Fish and Game Association hired her to lobby the Maine legislature for a state-run system to register the state's hunting and fishing guides. And on March 19, 1897, the legislature passed the bill requiring guides to buy a $1 license every year and file a one-page annual report. Maine registered 1,316 hunting guides that year alone and gave Flyrod the very first license. Aww. So not only was she the very first licensed guide in the state of Maine, or she wasn't the very first woman, she was the very first licensed guide, period. Like she, yeah, she helped pass that bill to be like, yeah, we, and worked so hard to make sure that conservation I can't believe was I never a huge knew this. part of it. And so to have, yeah, have licensed guides, it's making, you know, sure that the people that are 
bringing you out into the wilderness know what they're doing. Qualified, qualified individual. Yeah. Exactly. The accountability is so important when you're, I mean, Huge. I know that we're not as, we're not as crazy as some other places, but you can definitely get lost, die and Ooh. get tremendously hurt in the state of Maine, even in central Maine. It is quite oh, possible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah most we live of the in North it. is still territory. It's not even oh, yeah. Our, know, our, real towns are inhabitable. Yeah. It's still, yeah. When you go up to the County, yeah. if anybody who ever knows yeah. or has, if you've ever been to Maine, you know, Maine is like two thirds County and then one third of the rest <laughs> of the state. So you'll always look, you'll see one of our counties like takes up the majority of the state and it's it usually, it, it borders along with Canada and it's just rough, wild wilderness. It is untouched. Uh, you can't build on it. You can't do shit with it. It's yep. just, it's just wild, rough wilderness. And it's beautiful. 16 counties has our state. The Scatacles and Kennebec, Oxford and Driscoggin, Walla, Washington and York, Lincoln, Knox and Hancock, Saginaw and Somerset, Aroostook and Penobscot. Ooh. That was really good. <laughs> I always forget them, to be Elementary honest with you. school. Yeah, that sticks. That song was you know, drilled in there. <laughs> it's between that and it was biology class, the kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, yes, species. Yes, yes. Just stuck. Repeat, repeat, repeat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> All right, where'd you leave us? Anyway, um, so yeah, like I said, she worked tireless, tirelessly to promote conservation, and she also preached catch and release because even though she caught those, you know, twenty five hundred trout, there's uh, she most likely let the majority of them go because that would be an ungodly amount of overfishing. So unfortunately. Flyrod Crosby suffered a knee injury in the late 1890s, which put an end to some of her adventures. But she continued to fly fish well into her 80s in Rangeley Lake region. Flyrod Crosby passed away one day after her 92nd birthday on November 11th, 1946. The Rangeley record ran her obituary, ending with this message. Rangeley lost one of its most famous people, and America has lost its most famous sportswoman. Oh. May her soul rest in peace. Oh, I could cry. Oh, right, right? <laughs> and um, also to commemorate her life and everything that she did for the state of Maine, there's uh, the Fly Rod Crosby Trail, which is a 45-mile hiking trail that winds its way from Strong um, all the way to, like, along the Sandy River and over... Orbiton and um, Hardy Streams across the Appalachian Trail and all the way to the Sporting Heritage Museum. That's Aquasock. Now, <laughs> I can never pronounce it correctly. Now, Aquasock. Oh, uh, oh, um, with, no, yeah, it was, it was, um, Aquasock. <laughs> I had written down the pronunciation for you too. It was, um, Aquasock, yeah, Aquasock or something like that. Aqu no, it's, we're saying it incorrectly, but that's okay. I had it written down too. <laughs> there are so many. Or almost all of our um, town names are Native American names. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, so I'm from. Sometimes I'm, you get them correct. Sometimes you get them yeah. wildly wrong. I mean, like uh, we're just saying, Skowhegan, Maine. <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah. wonder. There's a Skowhegan has a remarkable history too. That that's a whole other episode in itself. And though I despise the town personally, you know, as some of us do in areas that we grew up, the town absolutely has some incredible, rich, and wonderful main history that is definitely oh, yeah. worth talking about. Um, it was one of the first uh, Skowhegan alone was one of the first places that um, we would sell ice. So we would 
we would drill up ice from the rivers and they would ship it on boats down the river. This was before the, the, um, the logging began. Mm -hmm. And that was one of our primary exports in Maine. So freaking cool. Was ice. Yeah. Interesting enough. Um, that's awesome. So that, those locations, so that's over by, you said Rangeley. So like for those who know anything about Maine or you're trying to get a visual on things, um, if you're skiers or snowboarders, um, these are around the areas of the main of Maine where like Sugarloaf mountain is with Sunday river mm. be is Sunday river over by that area or is Sunday river over by yeah, it? The, um, the, it's the, yeah. Yeah. So Sunday river, um, Sugarloaf, they call it, um, one of the, one of the best mountains in the East. I know that that all depends on where it's, what state you're from or where you live, but, uh, Sugarloaf mountain is, is quite incredible. And that gives you a nice visual of where this history kind of took place. If you know exactly where that is. Absolutely. It's definitely a wild area. It's, you know, it's not tame. It's not flat. It's not Natural easy going. springs everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but it is yeah. absolutely stunning. Especially to think about it, you know, in the 1800s and what it, it, oh, it these must towns have. must have looked like. And, and it still looks so just... empty and rural now as it is. So yeah, I can only yeah. imagine it was just absolute. It was just sheer. It was just sheer wild. It was wild. Yeah. She was also um, friends with, um, I can't remember the name of the tribe. Oh, no, I'm upset with myself. Are you talking, is it a local tribe? Is, is it the um, the Micmacs? Is, is that what no. we have? No, but she she knew a, um, a lot of people from a tribe in that region. They A lot of um, them actually became guides working under her. That oh, she that's fantastic. Would, um, yeah. Micmac might have been um, Bangor. It might have been a little more north, actually, north and eastern, so... I had friends who used to um, attend powwows, actually, um, up there. I always wanted I to attend. To one, I, my parents brought me to one. It was really incredible. It was so much fun. Oh, just colorful and just vivid. Absolutely and gorgeous. The people are so kind and welcoming, and they just they just want you to learn, and they just want you to, to see yeah. what they have to offer. And oh, it's it's such a we have we have such a rich rich Native American culture here in Maine that absolutely needs to be preserved. And yes, incredibly so. But so yeah, that's uh that's Flyrod Crosby. Well, I, she I, is an incredible woman that I'm very proud to have her in our heritage. Absolutely, I I think that kind of brought a little tear to my eye. That was really sweet. Thank you for that. I can't yeah, believe I, I didn't know as much as I should have. But sometimes we can become a little complacent with our own history. Sometimes in yes. the modern age, and we're just looking at easy. getting by. It's so hard to, when you come from a small town, I, maybe not everybody feels this way, but I definitely know that it's hard sometimes to find the beauty in your own small town in your region when you grow up and it's, there's nothing to do and you just struggle through all of the small town bullshit that happens all across the nation, you know, with alcoholism or drug addiction or you know, all of the factories shutting down and there's just misery and desolation. Everywhere. Yeah. Stores are shutting down. You're having yeah. to drive 50 miles to the nearest store. Like, and as a child and as a teenager, these things become so, that, so that's, that's the focus of your life is just yes. trying to survive with your family and your family's just yes. stressed about surviving. And, and so, your friends are struggling and your friends' families yeah. and the school is struggling and it's, it becomes very difficult to see beyond that or take you know, more pride or, and it really, I feel like looking back into histories like this and, you know, finding incredible people in Maine's history in small towns, you don't, you forget how much history there is there and how much color and how much, you know, just a, like brilliance that 
can be found. Yeah. When, yeah. You tend it, just, to, it should be. You tend to easily take things for granted. And I think that it's just at one point in everyone's lives and maybe yes. not in everybody, but you get to a point where you really want to learn where you came from. You want to have some kind of connection and some, you know, we don't necessarily have a, a culture per se, you know, Eleni and I, but we do have, we do come from a long history um, of shared, uh, of shared experiences within our communities. So, you know, yeah. we, we pull a lot from that. Um, and so learning these types of things has become something of a hobby of ours because, you know, even though yeah, we were I all striving to get out of interest. Maine, Yes, you know, exactly. We, we, you always, even mentally or within our hearts, we always come back. Yep. And as soon as I, it was like, as soon as I left Maine for college is when I started to realize how much beauty it held and how much I truly did love it. And all of the things that I missed that just, it keeps calling me back. I mean, I've lived all over the country and I, I keep coming back eventually because it's it's my home. and Nothing beats the, the hundreds of acres that we get to experience in exactly. our own backyards. Even if those hundreds yeah. of acres aren't ours, in a lot of cases, we have some wonderful neighbors. We, have, we do have a relatively neighborly state. Um, and mm. folks, as long as you're respecting their land, you can hike through it. You know, you can oh, snowshoe yeah. through it. People come onto our property all the time to hike. Yeah. They come and get our permission. And they, you know, yeah. We've got... Nearly 300 acres. Though, of course, people can come and yeah. enjoy themselves. So, I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing to remind ourselves of how lucky we are to to have been raised and to have sure. the opportunity to be of to to be in this state. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say in my roundabout way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. I, I honestly, it takes me a while to get there too because I, it's all it's all in pictures in in the brain, and so the yep. the yep. brain to the mouth sometimes for me. I know what I'm saying. I don't know if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I know what I'm saying. <laughs> Well, all right. Yeah, so that leads us into uh, a, a bit of a change of pace, I should say. So, um, let's mix it up a little bit. Let's so, see. all right. So, um, the resources uh, that I have found for this, apart from just experiencing it myself within the past uh, little over a decade or so, um, come from National Geographic. The Atlantic, and of course our own local newspaper, the Central Maine, you know, dot com newspaper. Um, and I'm going to introduce you to our modern folklore legend, and I'm going to leave it up to you to decide whether or not if this man is a, a hero in his own sorts or if he's just mm -hmm. another odd criminal. So it really does depend on your perspective of the story. I feel like there's a delightful mix of both, um, but it really does if it, it does depend on what perspective you pull from, um, and the lessons that are, that are left to be had here. So <clears throat> in the 27 years, he lived in the Maine woods in the North pond area in Belgrade lakes, to be exact, Christopher Knight said a single word because he never spoke to himself and avoided humanity with the guile of a samurai. He went <laughs> decades without using his voice. In fact, in his hidden forest encampment, he laughed silently and he sneezed silently, so they say. So fearful, <laughs> because he was incredibly fearful of being discovered. The only time he spoke came out at some point in the 1990s, when he surprised a hiker during a walk. Hi, Knight said. The hiker barely looked up, not realizing he was face to face with the legendary hermit of North Pond. Now, living alone for 27 years in a makeshift camp, Knight survived by stealing food, clothes, and provisions from neighboring camps and cabins. Cabins. Knight committed over 1,000 break-ins during his self-imposed exile. 
studying law enforcement and homeowners alike for nearly three de decades. Christopher Knight was only 20 years old when he walked away from society, not to be seen again for more than a quarter of a century. He had been working for less than a year, installing home and vehicle alarm systems near Boston, Massachusetts, when abruptly, without giving notice to his boss, he quit his job. He never even returned his tools. He cashed his final paycheck and left town. If that does not That's sound... That's a dick move. Yeah, but... I know so many people who have done that, too. Yeah. It's just such a dick move. Yeah, and oh. I just want to I just want to point out where there are similarities and where there isn't similarities to the Christopher McCandles. Is that uh, the uh, Into the Wild story? Oh. The, tre the tremendous similarities. And so while that was also a true story and inspired a lot of... Uh, a lot of individuals to kind of follow in that path. These two are very different in a lot of ways and in, in which I will get into, but um, I do reference that in a bit here. So <laughs> to commit a thousand break-ins before getting caught is a world-class streak. It requires precision, patience, daring, and luck. It also demands a specific understanding of the people that you're studying. Mm. He looks for patterns and everyone has patterns. He says, Anyone. I, I guess that's just so creepy. Well, that's why talk uh, about yeah, yeah, stalking people basically. Everywhere. So and that and that and that is kind of the truth mm. of, the, of of the fact. He was a harmless man. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know these these quotes that I use of him um, came from after his arrest. Nobody ever got to him prior to this. So this is all just a recollection of his life after mm -hmm. the fact. So anyone who reveals what he's learned, Chris stated, is not by his definition, a true hermit. Chris had come around on the idea of himself as a hermit and eventually embraced it. When he mentioned Thoreau, who spent two years at Walden, he dismissed him with a single word and said, Dilettante. I should have Deletant? looked that up. Dilettante, D-I-L-E-T-T-A-N-T-E. -T -T -E. True hermits, according to Chris, do not write books. They do not have friends. And they do not answer questions. When asked why he didn't at least keep a journal in the woods, he scoffed and said, well, I expected to die out there. Who would read my journal? You? I'd rather take it to my grave. <laughs> the only so I just looked it up. This yeah. is what dilettante is. It's a person who cultivates an area of interest such as arts without real commitment or knowledge. So he's basically calling him a poser. Yeah. Just being like, oh, yeah, you think going out there for, like, a short little while and writing a book about it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. F off. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. He said the only reason that he was talking to people at this point, he said, is because he was locked in a jail and needed the practice of interacting with others. Oh, well, yeah, it has been a while. When asked, but you must have thought about things, Chris replied with, you know, I did examine myself. I examined the solitude and did increase my perception. But here's the tricky thing. When I applied my increased perception to myself, I lost my identity. With no audience, no one to perform for, I was just there. There was no need to define myself. I became irrelevant. The moon was the minute hand, the seasons the hour at hand. I didn't even have a name. I never felt lonely. And to put it romantically... I was quite free. Wow. So it does sound yeah. I, I bet for some people that sounds absolutely terrifying, the worst possible outcome. And, but that does sound kind of nice. Yeah. To just be like, oh, I don't have to be anybody. 
exactly. anything. Just exist. Exactly. So his case was called almost certainly the biggest burglary case in the history of Maine, which may be a touch too fine. A year after Knight's arrest, for instance, two 19-year-olds stole, stole more than $200,000 from a house on the island of Vinyl, on the, uh, on the, in the island town of Vinylhaven. It's a, you know, common thing that Maine fishermen tend not to trust banks, as they say. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and keep that in mind. So this was, he was arrested in 2013. And so, right after the fact, teenagers, teenagers stole $200,000. Yeah, Dang, that's from a, a house. Yeah, but you know, Maine fishermen, especially lobstermen. Ooh, that's a culture that, that's a terrifying culture. Talk about them. If Maine had a mob, it would be the lobstermen, I tell you. <laughs> All right, so Knight, by his own estimation, engineered 40 break-ins in a year, or more than 1,000 in total, before he was caught stealing marshmallows and Humpty Dumpty potato chips from a commissionary from a commissary of a camp for kids with disabilities. I remember this. Oh, this is, this was yep, the big, this I was the different thing that, too, yep. is because one yep. of the camps that he broke into was the pine tree camp, which is a camp for children with disabilities. And he used yep. to routinely break in. He never left a mark, you know, but they would notice things were missing. It never and hurt anything. Like it, it was never anything like out of malice. Terrible. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't anything that like somebody would have died without. Exactly. You know, it was it was basic but, human necessity. But he was but still he was I'm stealing from disabled children. Fact of stealing. <laughs> that does sound so, like I'm defending. <laughs> and but according to according to Chris, this was a typical haul. Most of his break-ins netted loot loot like boxed macaroni and cheese, Mountain Dew, propane tanks, tarps, and novels. Knight stole you what he not needed. Not a hermit if you're drinking Mountain Dew. <laughs> you're you're surviving, man. You're surviving. <laughs> Knight stole what he needed to survive. He accumulated $395, most of it in singles, in case of an emergency, but he never spent a dollar. Some of the bills had become even moldy. So he had less than $400 in the 30 years that he was out there. So, Knight's successful string of burglaries is among the least astonishing details of the story, however. At the age of 20, after earning a high school diploma and a vocational degree, he quit his job as the alarm technician and took a road trip down to Florida. On his return, he drove past his childhood home in Albion. I feel like what, what I'm about to describe is, is something that I would do. And I have been there. I'm sure that we have all had our moments. But even more recently, I, I have felt these kinds, of, these kinds of urges. And I just really like uh, his description of what he did. On his return, he drove past his childhood home in Albion, Maine, which is only about 15 minutes from where I live, a small village northeast of Augusta, about halfway between China, Maine, and Freedom, Maine, and he continued 100 miles north until he nearly ran out of gas on a small dirt road. He entered the woods like somebody would if they were going to commit suicide, and this was his quote. He left his keys inside of the car. He had no destination, nor a map. He carried a tent but had never spent one night in one before. Most oh of his God. family members and friends assumed he had died. And in one crazy sense, they were right. Yeah. He drifted for weeks, walking south, stealing food from people's gardens and camps. By the time he was discovered, by the time he discovered an ideal site, shielded by boulders and dense forest between two ponds, stepped away from the nearest of several dozen summer cabins in the area, he was just 30 miles from his parents' home though he didn't know it. The site noted by an author who wrote a book about him, uh, which I will 
get into in a minute, has a good cell phone reception, actually. You know, he has an eye for ambient oh. details that reflect the subject's character. The geological term for the kind of boulders that, sh- that shielded Knight's sight is erratic. The lines of writing in his letters were crowded together f- as if for warmth. And the car he abandoned oh, wow. at the edge of the forest is, by this point, as much a part of wilderness as a, part of, as a product of civilization. His car is still there. What? Yeah, his car is still there. Nobody's towed the car. It's been there for thirty years. It's almost like uh, it's almost, and it's yeah. it's you know have you haven't you ever walked into the woods behind your house and you found like a random old abandoned vehicle? Rusted. I thought you I've were done ta- a, I thought you were deaf. I okay. Yes, there are multiple. You and right. I camped near one. Exactly. Like, yeah. There's like I thought- <laughs> you're often wondering like how the fuck did this vehicle get out here amongst all this shit? Yeah, they were there way before we even built our our house there. Yeah, and so his his car has just kind of become a uh, a blend like cause the road is is it's not even a road it. anymore where he parked the car yeah. and it's just become overgrown in a part of a part of civilization. Able, like that's a lot of hard line decisions he made basically all at once. Pretty like, in, pretty I'm pretty instantaneously. Yeah. I'm going to camp and live out here, even though I've never spent a night in a tent before in my life, and I'm going to start stealing from people. Well, the thing Those is... are really intense, hard, like, life-changing, even one of those things. I, I guess I, that's just... that's. Well, we, like have to, we have break. to remember that he quit his job, he got in the car, and he drove down to Florida. And so after he drove down to Florida, he drove back up to Maine. Yeah. Which, if it's a constant trip, what, like three days? Two, two That's three like days? Four, three days to get there, and then three days back. Yeah. And on his way back up here, he came to central Maine. So once you get into the state of Maine to get to Albion, where he was discussing, uh, mm-hmm. it's about three and a half to almost four hours coming into the state. And so he had quite a bit of time to really contemplate what was going on. And during that time, he communicated with still nobody um, before he parked the car and exactly yeah. did what you were describing. So, I mean, I feel you like know, he he had a few hard days. I feel like Ethan Demers would have done this. I feel like if mm. he went, like, he almost was this guy. <laughs> like, went to take a trip out to California one day. He was just like, I'm done. I'm moving to California. And went, like, started driving. And then it didn't work out. But now he's, like, in Alaska the last time I heard. Like, doing crazy shit working with, like, bringing people up to the top of mountains in helicopters so they can ski and snowboard down. He's living his best freaking life. Oh, my life. God. Is like that what he's doing? A little bit. And, yeah, Andy's, like, works in Tahoe. This is the last I heard. Anyway. And oh, that to, is like on the mountain. Yeah, he's doing great. But I feel like if one thing would have gone a little bit worse in his life at that specific time, he definitely would have become the North Pond Hermit. He would have abandoned civilization. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Which is funny because for those, you know, who obviously don't know this man, you know, I, I don't know him as well as Laney, but when I think of him, I think of the image of him. I think about this this wonderfully creative individual with the most fluorescently fiery red hair, curls, so afro. many curls. Yeah, an afro curl, if you will, and the best fashion sense of anybody that I have ever met before. He can put on anything, and it's, it's just It's insane how well flows. he can pull anything off. It's, yeah. I, I think it's the confidence that is well, 90% of it. <laughs> that'll do it. That'll do it. Fantastic. Okay, so Knight took extreme precautions to defend his isolation. He never lit an open fire, 
and he devised trails over rocks mm. and roots to avoid leaving any footprints. Now imagine 30 years, 30 years. And never he never lit a fire. It never had a fire. I don't understand it myself. I feel like there are some exceptions to the story. And I'm sure that this is where the bit of the touch of folklore comes in. Though he yes. says this directly yes. himself, there yes. has to have been a time when this man lit a fire, regardless that it's not for me to change his story uh, from, from his, from his mouth. So mm-hmm. regardless, uh, but he did, I know for a fact he would, um, cover up his tracks really intelligently because in Maine, you know, between the mudding season, which we have two of them and our winter season, your feet are everywhere. The, the footprints, you, you cannot just not leave them. And so every yeah. decision, every move he made was very calculated. So taking advantage of his alarm system expertise, I'll give him that. He disabled surveillance cameras, spied on homes for days to learn their owner's habits and restricted his raids to weeknights when the cabins were most likely to be unoccupied. And once inside, he looked for spare keys and stashed them elsewhere on the property to enable future break-ins. When he borrowed a canoe to paddle to properties across the pond, he made sure upon returning it to sprinkle it with pine needles to give the impression that it had not been moved. Now imagine if... So so this is where I'm saying I'm allowing it to you guys to decide whether or not if this is a, a, you know, a hero of sorts because of how he chose to live his life in complete abandonment of civilization. But... You know, he though we are fortunate enough to be able to say this man never hurt anybody. Yes. He had all of the tools to be able to hurt and be kind of psychopathic about it. Even though oh, in yeah. his mind was Especially it was it was a very whole, calculated I'm, survival. Yeah. The whole watching them because he knew about the surveillance cameras and spying. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. That makes me really yeah. uncomfortable. It makes you very uncomfortable. Like I'm looking out my, my living room window right now into the vastness that is the wooded backyard I have. And I wonder, yeah. <laughs> and I wonder. So Knight entered the forest because there was no place for him in modern society. His actions were so stealthy and his bounty so um, so small that for decades, residents believed that the North Pond Hermit was a myth. This was actually something mm-hmm. that was talked about yep. in our towns, is that there was this random Bigfoot-type creature. If you're a fan yes. of Bigfoot, Maine has its place, too. And so at, uh, there used to be varying stories of a Bigfoot around the Belgrade Lakes region. It was just the North Pond Hermit, and he was just yep. an, average, an average fella. So... There was a willful ignorance on both sides, however. Knight did not learn the name of the pond he haunted until he was arrested. He had no idea. He was living for 30 years on Belgrade Lakes. Yeah, he just went with it. Um, Or even the nearest town at that point, which was Rome, Maine. He claims to have been ignorant of the year and even the decade. He kept himself as one does in the sense of a cycle, the moon was his minute hand, as he once again said, mm-hmm. and the seasons his hour hand. He just he woke with the he woke with the sun and went down with the with the moon. So one must ask, one must ask themselves, what kind of man does something like this? What kind of man even talks like this? He was very artic- articulate, and auto. Especially for not talking to anybody. Yes, He's articulate. Yeah. Yes. So. It can be quoted that he is an autodidact, for starters, with the attendant traits of one being overly formal speech. And, of course, when asked about his survival methods by Michael Finkel, who used his conversations with Knight to publish his best-selling book, The Stranger in the Woods, Knight replied, 
I have woodscraft, narcissism, and a quaking insecurity. Oh, so During, like, yeah, that is the worst combination yes. that could possibly exist, is narcissism and insecurity. Because I do believe those two things can coexist, what the comorbidly exist. But God, what a horrific combination to constantly feel like you are the most important and best thing that the world has to offer, and also doubt it constantly. Like that is that's a rough combination. <laughs> I mean, it kept him alive, right? I guess so. That's true. Um, I just he believed he was good enough to, to make it, and he made it. I mean, he did. He, you know, we'll tell you how he got stopped, but, um, well, technically, I already told you how he was caught, but the story does go on. I do want to point out, though, that Michael Finkel, who used these conversations to publish his book, The Stranger in the Woods, is, is not a main author. Um, he works for uh, The Atlantic um, and kind of monopolized off of this story, as some authors often do. Um, and I do not believe that the North Pond Hermit has seen any of these proceeds from this best-selling book. But regardless, this is the only man that Knight was comfortable speaking to. He chose one person to have an interview mm. with, and it was this man. And um, Michael Finkel worked, well, his an article was published, I'm sorry, through the Atlantic, but Michael Finkel actually worked for GQ. Mm. So, so different. I do apologize for that, for that mishap. So, but the, this story, like the, the bulk of a lot of this information has been pulled from what he was able to uh, surmise from Christopher Knight himself. Um, so I will give him, I will give him that benefit of the doubt. I, I, off, I just wish that he had chosen a main author. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless, the man, what did he know? I don't know even why he chose GQ. Who knows why he chose what he chose, but he, he might've just been like Michael Finkel. Yeah. Michael Finkel. You know what? The man sounds ridiculous Finkel and enough. Let's Finkel go and with him. Yeah. You know, Ace Ventura. <laughs> I, like what Mar- I mean, what mother gives their child a first name that rhymes with their last name? That's well, terrible. there must have been something that, that really drew terrible. him to it. And yeah. I, I tried to pull that information up, but there was nothing I could I could find that, that showed why he chose Michael. But regardless, most of the quotes that I have said are quotes that Michael was able to uh, derive in conversation from him and are in this gotcha. book. And I will include that link, of course, in um, our description of the episode. But regardless, um, during a conversation with, with Michael uh, about literature, Knight says that he, def- he defiantly tells people that he refuses to be intellectually bullied into finishing Ulysses. The conversation went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between them. And it was very confusing because when, when Michael was trying to get out of him, like what makes a person do this and you know, what kind of person does this? And you know, when he's asking all these questions, Knight just kind of said a series of things such as, well, I have woodscraft art, you know, narcissism and a quaking insecurity, you know, about things. And you know, I, I don't want to be intellectually bullied into finishing Ulysses. And mind you, despite the fact that he has not encountered an intellectual or a bully in 27 years during this time, one can have a genetic predisposition to solitude, Finkel noted. And Knight came from a family of loners. Knight told Finkel that he had missed some of his family, but only to a certain degree. 
You know, in Maine, I also want to point out that in Maine, we have a tendency because of just how things grow. You're either, you know, there's two types of families, right? You're either close and you're you're netted together and you're very involved, or you tend to grow up, grow apart, and you you live your life, you know, and you know you have your family and they do exist and they're there. That's the thing, the difference between Lainey and I, um, mm-hmm. is Lainey has a very tight knit family, and with my family. You know, when my parents grew up, they made the choice to move to Maine and they kind of isolated themselves from a lot of parts of their family. You know, I would only see my grandparents like once a year and sometimes even as an adult, I don't see them at all in a year. And so, but it seems normal to me. It seems, though I crave family and that connection with people, it, it's this predisposo- pre, 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 um, what's the word? Well, it's in your, your family's, you know, just the way they... That's just how we are. And so, well, it's it's very similar tonight. You know, you you grow up and you do your thing and you move on and some, you know, you connect or you don't. And so it's a, it's a very similar, I I experience a lot of, a lot of similarities with that specific sentiment that he has. Um, So Knight's Hermitage, sorry, Knight's Hermitage was not in entirely pure however though he did steal processed food and a twin-sized mattress he also listened to a talk radio show more specifically listened to a tremendous amount of rush limbaugh he played yeah 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 you know he did which i think is kind of interesting to like endless rush limbaugh would you want to rejoin society Oh, God. They don't really make it that appealing. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you. I think I know the radio station he listened to. It was the Fox News station here in Maine, which was, I think, like 104.9 or one, no, 104.1 or something like that. It's It sticks. Like, there are certain – because my, my father is, is was oh, very God. conservative growing up. And so, you know, I don't think he – he he had his fair share of, of Rush Limbaugh, and I would just listen to these things. And my father would just listen sometimes, just to just to hear what he had to say, that so that he could just either a disagree or go. Well, I mean, he's not that off base, you know, one of those types of things. And so this <laughs> oh, man, and so here's this man, a hermit, listening to the radio, and he chooses Fox Radio, and he chooses Rush, Rush Limbaugh, Limbaugh, who would play all day on our local stations. Yeah, um, but he also played handheld video games and even watched a miniature Panasonic black and white television charged with stolen car batteries. An admission that, that I did hear about. Yeah, an admission I did hear that, about that one. the TV and the and the car mm-hmm. batteries. So it says an admission that draws into question his claim that he did not know what decade it was. Because yeah, he says, yeah, oh, yeah. you know, like, oh, I don't know anything. I just follow the sun and the moon and. Yeah, honey, honey, you had a you had a TV, okay? Yeah, yeah. And you, you played. It. Yeah. I'm sure Rush Limbaugh mentioned <laughs> what day it fucking was. Sure, I mean he's crazy, but he's not that crazy. Um, and it was not easy. He had to endure main winters when temperatures sank below negative twenty degrees Fahrenheit, and I really? tell you, so he would pace across his site at two in the morning to fend off frostbite. Oftentimes, because that's what you got to do. The one thing that I've heard, you know, especially when it comes to homelessness um, in Maine or in colder uh, in colder states is you can't stop moving. You got to keep moving, move, 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 walk, walk, walk. You know, we still have we have tremendous amount of. Yeah, though it may not be as intense as other states. We do have um, a large homeless population here. Um, It is so, so hard to watch, especially when you go into the cities and the homeless shelters are just packed to the brim and there's still, there's still no places for these people to go. And the best way that they've been able to survive is just by keep walking. They say, keep walking. Just don't stop moving. It's heartbreaking. Burlington did a really great job when, um, 
after the temperatures dip below a certain point, the cops would go around and try and find every single homeless person on the street and either put them in a hotel room or bring them in for the night. That is and bizarrely so precious. I don't know. Isn't I didn't. It? I don't know any other any other towns that it's have done that. It's a very that, small but Bur- city, but to Burlington me, but yeah, is quite progressive. Before. Burlington yeah, is yeah. quite progressive. Burlington, Vermont. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so he said that regardless of whether or not he had to fight off this frostbite and these these brittle temperatures, the force still granted him that freedom, privacy, and serenity. It transformed his brain. He developed a photogenic recall, a proclivity for deep contemplation and a limitless attention span. One of his favorite pastimes was hiking before dawn to, to arise and watch the fog gather in the valley. Oh my God. It's my favorite too. I know. Right. (laughs) I know. Right. I mean, honestly, I can relate to this. Like there's, cause I work nights. And so coming home on that drive, it takes me about like 45 minutes to an hour to drive home. There's just nothing more peaceful than the lack of cars on a country road and the fog just going over all the farmland and with the mountains in the distance, there is a peaceful serenity to it. And I have stopped the car on many oh, occasions just to breathe in that moisture, that natural, hum- that natural humidity that nature offers you. Mm-hmm. But it's that cold. It's almost like when you drink a cold glass of water and, it, and you know, for the first time in the day and you can feel it go all the way down the tubes. Yeah. It spreads. Yeah. It spreads. And that's what, that's what, that's what smelling in that moist air does to you with Oh, oh, I understand exactly what he's talking about. So this was like 11 or 12 years ago when you and I, we pitched the tent out in one of the back part of oh. um, my property. <laughs> yes. And I remember that night, like I, I so vividly remember laying like on my back with my head in your lap and you're just like massaging my head as I read Steppenwolf out yes. loud. Yes, yes, I just, remember. Just, like, <laughs> that was one of my so favorite ridiculous. moments of our friendship. Yeah, it was so, it was so lovely. And then we woke up in the morning super uncharacteristically pretty early for the two yeah. of us. Like we Well, I think the body would do that when it's got that natural brittleness to usually. it, when it's cold. Yeah. It's cold. We're not in a comfortable bed. Like, the mm-hmm. body knows when it needs to wake, you know? And, and we totally woke up in, in a scenery that was mm. similar to that, where it, was, it wasn't quite cold out yet, but it, you know, it wasn't fall. It was, like, late summer. Sometimes and I so can still it smell still, it. Yeah, exactly. It's that there was that dankness, and just because there is the basically the ground is alive with everything. With mo- it's so soft. Us. It was very so, soft, and yeah, the moss was just blossoming everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like everywhere, and you could lay your head down, and the ground was itself a pillow. That's that's our backyard. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Oh, so beautiful. And so I, I completely get that. Where if I could experience that on a regular basis. Yeah, that'd be extremely addicting. I get the allure of it completely. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But also, I like my bed, and um, I play a little too much PlayStation um, to become a hermit. Well, times are different, right? Times are different for us. (laughs) There was a period, there was that window, you know, just like Christopher Knight here had, just like Ethan Demers might have had. You know, there's that window of one's life where they're like, well, this is it. Like, I'm. Yeah, if we took advantage of it at that time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, at that time, I've, yeah. I've experienced it multiple times since then. Hell, I've experienced it yeah. within the past month where I'm like, what, what's the point of all this? You know, like, what am I doing? <laughs> Who cares? Nobody, nobody cares. You know, but, you know, moving on. So Finkel, the writer of the book, of course, and the uh, the interviewer, uh, 
It quotes a handful of recent scientific studies to agree that Knight's camp may have been the ideal setting to encourage maximum, maximum brain function. Mm-hmm. Now, in her new book, The Nature Fix, about the growing field of environmental health research, the journalist Florence Williams reports on dozens of studies that find exposure to nature is good for civilization. Well, that's kind of funny. That links into how uh, Fly Rod Crosby absolutely healed. Like by that's absolutely that. Yeah, a few days in nature yields a fifty percent improvement in creativity, increases attention span, and lessens hyperactivity and aggression. (laughs) Honestly, when I am feeling, you know, I've had some pretty bad days, you know, recently. Who hasn't? Um, And being able to go outside with a cup of coffee on my porch and to look at my yard and to look at the greenery and to feel the peace of what is around me and the lack of chaos is just, it it really does help me to actually further the next step and to continue on my day and not rest in depression in my own bed. Yeah. It makes a difference. And sometimes we have to force it, but if we are lucky enough to live in beautiful places such as this, um, if we accept the natural medicine for what it is, it can actually be far more beneficial than, you know, what may be prescribed to us. Though I have nothing against medications, I do take some myself. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, I just, I, I'm but also still, saying that there's absolutely. nothing, there's nothing there's better a- than a healthy dose of nature in the morning. Yeah. Um, so uh, proximity to the ocean correlates with one's happiness as well. Oh, let's talk about ocean and cat here. Um, and mortality rates drop in the greener neighborhoods while traffic noise increases the strain on one's heart. Put another way, our growing alienation from nature is absolutely killing us. So. Not shocking. Now, here in Maine, we have a lot of folks who define this man as a hero of sorts. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of personality most of you know that Maine is a blue state, but if you look at why Maine is a blue state, it's because of the way that it's district out and our coastal areas, including Portland are very blue. And those are where massive amounts of populations are. And, um, but if we were to break it up a little bit more in a healthy way, unfortunately, and I have nothing negative to say about this. Once again, this is not a political show, but our state is very red. Our state is very red. Um, and we tend to have a lot more conservative or libertarian types um, in our state, which I have, once again, this, there's nothing wrong with it, but I think it, it really does play into the, the following statement that's really said here, which is a man willing to live on the cusp of civilization and live as he desired without apology is how people are describing him as a hero. So it's like yes. that. I don't care what you think. I'm going to live my way. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just going to do this. This is my thing. And though that applies across a lot of political stances, the way that it's implied here is, you know, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to take the land I want. I'm going to take what I need to survive. I'm not going yep. to hurt anybody. And I'm just going, I'm just going to live as a human being in a way as an animal would survive. I'm just going to live. I'm just going to survive. Yes. But I feel like stealing from. Well, that's where, that's where the con- you is yeah. not surviving. I mean, it is, it is in a more modern sense, but if he's really a hermit, if he's really somebody who's going to live off the land, then no. Stealing is the opposite of what And this is where the conversation comes into play about him because he is our modern folk hero, but is he a hero or is he really just our legend? And he's not really a legend because he's true, but is he really a hero? Because yes, I understand if I am wealthy and I have a camp and I have I have amenities and ways hero. Kind of, yeah. I mean But he's uh, also not uh, actively destroying anything because what he does take is so minimal. 
And it's, yes, it's, you know, I, I, I obviously from the way I'm talking about it have no correct answer. I, you know, I don't have the even, you know, I don't, I don't know what he should be labeled, but I do love being able to ponder it. Yes. And, and then this is where, when I was bringing up the, the Christopher McCandles, is it McCandless or McCandles? But everybody knows it's the into the wilds fella. Um, you know, he decided to quit civilization, move to Alaska and to live on his own. He found a bus, you know, and he was trying really yeah. hard to, to survive. And he only survived for what, four months out there. Um, and the difference between this Christopher and our Christopher here in Maine is Christopher did not have camps to raid and to loot and to steal yeah. from. So, and that's why you start he to question a poisonous, you know, he was sure he was certainly trying time. and he was tremendously uneducated in what he should have been doing, but his way of survival, they both were though. well, yes, they both were, but the, the, in, but the Christopher from Alaska had I feel in, at his at his basic core of who he was the best of intentions. Where this yeah. man, though I don't feel like he saw it as doing something negative, still stole from a community, still av av avoided because because I because Christopher McCandles would have rejoined society. His intention was to come back in to get supplies that he needed to continue educating and only better himself. Where this man just decided he was giving up on everything. Our our Chris. Just decided he was giving up on everything and he didn't care about what other people thought and he was going to do what he needed to do to survive. Even though, of yep. course, he didn't hurt anybody, he still stole for over 30 years and caused terror in some ways because people really did think that there was... a Bigfoot. <laughs> people thought he was a Bigfoot, yes. And, of course, people were, you know, they were locking up their camp homes and, yeah, you know, the no, idea absolutely. of being watched and being surveilled... It's it's such a different it's a different and conversation. Was, to admittedly, be had. observing people really yes. closely, yeah, you know, it, that is for days that is really uncomfortable. It's, it's so really uncomfortable. But is it uncomfortable because about. is it uncomfortable because we in because modern society want this sense of privacy be, and yeah, because he just happens to be unconfrontational and not dangerous. He just happens so lucky. to be that way. But most people who distribute that kind of behavior, being willing to, you know, watch somebody that closely for a week at a time, is usually not in the best of intentions. And yes. that's and so it's, I, don't, I guess such it's such a weird hit and the reality topic. of how much it might happen without your knowledge, I think is why mm -hmm. it's more creepy, is the knowing that he did that, we didn't know he was doing it. You know, like if you, I was a camp that, or if I had a camp anywhere near that area and heard that, all I would be thinking about was how many times he could have been watching me. I could have been watching like, you. Yeah, could have exactly. had the worst, that's, or that's, this could have this this story could inspire so many other people to do the same, and they might not have the best of intention. Yeah, that too. So, that too. but okay, let me continue here. So, in Maine. We have a lot of folks who may define him as a hero of sorts, a man willing to live on the cusp of civilization and live as he desired without apology. As for his folk hero status, however, and this is now we're going to bring in some local folks here, District Attorney Megan Maloney, who is still our district attorney, uh, who prosecuted Knight's case, said many people fantasize about leaving everything behind, heading into the woods, as Christopher Knight did. Maloney, who was only four months into her position when Knight left, finally was caught sorry, who she was only in, she was only into her position for four months when Knight was finally caught. She said most of Knight's burglary cases were committed long before the statute of limitations ran out on them. However, mm, yeah. instead of throwing the book at him, and this is our main women, I tell you, instead of throwing the book at him, 
and trying to lock him up for his entire life, Maloney said, I just became convinced I could rehabilitate him. Yes. Terry Hughes, a state game warden who, the state game warden who caught Knight originally was quoted saying, now this is, this is a, a really funny thing because once again, if you're from a small town, you know, it depends, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're from a town where you have a, a population of like 4,000 below hell, where they're talking about, yeah. I, I believe, is a very, very, very small population. Terry Hughes, the game warden, was quoted saying, Listen, I know a lot of the faces in this room. A lot of you I arrested. <laughs> he joked. <laughs> and he drew a round of laughter, of course, which cracked more jokes about catching night before explaining how the man who had evaded locals and authorities for 27 years came to be caught. Hughes, a former Marine, who has been with the Maine Warden Service since 1995, found Knight in 2013 after setting up cameras at the Pine Tree Camp, the Pine Tree Society summer camp for children with physical disabilities, where Knight stole the food and other items over the years. This was a constant camp he visited. I mean, oh, realistically, oh. And, and it is around the Belgrade Lakes I region. I didn't realize it was like a place he constantly hit. That's and and so, yeah, yeah, it was, oh, it was constant. And that's where they caught him because... Once again, you know, as time moves on and as technology moves on and as, like, accountability moves on, people are like, okay, we're missing things. Okay, what's going on? And somebody might think it's How something internal. Just start his own garden or something? Like, I feel like there were other ways he could Well, according to him, he never lit a fire. So, I mean, <laughs> he didn't seem to, he didn't seem to, he didn't seem to conform to the normal mountain hermit, hermits, as we would call yeah. them. You know, like, he, he, he he stole what he needed to to survive lived every day but he didn't contribute anything back to the land and we're going to include um an image of his camp um in our instagram mm -hmm. upload so that you guys can see the uh environment that he he really built for himself the home in which he called his his home for for 30 years but so uh let's see here he had no military training, but he had military written all over him, Hughes said, of Knight's ability to survive. So in that sense of like being able to craft, yeah, being able to survive, he knew how to survive. Knight would not leave footprints behind. He would not venture out in the winter. He would not rob the home that stood on the land he was squatting on. He wouldn't fish and he wouldn't hunt. He would steal only from the homes and camps where he thought he wouldn't get caught. Until he finally, of course was caught. It was only after Hughes installed a game camera in the camp where Knight stole most of his food did anyone have any idea what he even looked like. Mm -hmm. After Knight was caught around 1 a.m. in 2013 and after hours of interrogation, Knight finally took Hughes out to the place he had called home for 27 years. Even if Hughes took a dozen, took the dozens of people out within a hundred yards of his camp, they wouldn't even know what they were looking at. Wow. And so that, and there is of course a lot of information still wow. coming out. This has been since 2013. So this is nine years after the arrest. Um, you know, here in Maine, we still keep tabs on him and we kind of, pick up uh you know where he's left off but our last update actually was in 2018 that was five years ago so just about That's... five years ago because we're approaching we're approaching the beginning of when he was so about four to five years ago yeah he um he's been in jail since um, i thought he went i thought his brother helped him out you mean at the camp jail 
Oh. And I thought after he, um, like, got out of jail, his, his brother somehow came and, like, helped get him a job, and he's been something like that. I can't remember. That might have also just been a rumor as well. <laughs> You say it was 27 Well, years. no, you're correct. You're correct. After being captured, he became a worldwide cult hero. When he got out of jail, he got a job. And those who know him say he now lives in an apartment and leads a quiet life. An apartment must feel like an absolute castle. And that was only updated in 2020. Yep. This was more or less you the story. You said it was 27 years? It was 27 years before he was caught. That's almost 10,000 days. Yeah. A little under 10,000 yeah. days. So he is not in currently prison. in prison, which is good to know. He, the man didn't yeah. hurt anybody, even though he no. did commit he a lot of burglaries. So that's then this is where that argument comes in. Like, is he a criminal? Is you know is he a, well, even is, he a, he was, is he a legend? Nearly not if nine years was you know worth what little burglary he had done, even if he was found guilty for it. Out. Yeah, nineteen eighty six. Terrible judge of what sentences should be. I don't. To be honest, yeah, we're not lawyers. Uh, nineteen eighty six is when he ventured out on his own, and that's crazy. That's oh, a whole, so that's a whole life. Cool. That's a whole life yeah. of. Wow. A whole life of That's living on his own. as old as I am. That's my entire life. Yeah. yeah. My entire life he lived in the woods. That's freaking crazy. Oh! So yeah, two pretty awesome people from Maine. Like Kat said, I don't know where you would place the North Pond Hermit on the awesome scale, but I feel like he's on there somewhere. Well, I can definitely, <laughs> I can definitely say that... Um, the delightful woman that you were speaking about is is the hero in this story, in my opinion. Yeah, Flyrod is a pretty. Yeah, I'm going to be doing some more research on her myself, um, and yeah. I know that there's a book out there about her. There's also, like I said, there's a book uh, on Christopher Knight. Um, yeah, go and check him out. Yeah, awesome. I will. We will include all of the the cited material that we've pulled from um, in the description of our episode, of course. And if there's anything that we've missed uh, or misrepresented or possibly have gotten slightly wrong, please do not hesitate to send us an email at contagiouscuriositypod at gmail because we want to make sure that things are right and accurate. And by no yeah, means, yeah, you guys, we're not professional yeah. historians. I don't yeah. know if you would have yeah. guessed that by now. Yeah, but I feel like we were very we're direct. I feel like we were very direct about <laughs> what we do as friends. And what we do as friends is we bring some interesting information to each other and we just exactly. tell it to each other. And I mean, if we continued to talk about what we have already spoken to each other about, it would be awfully boring for us. And after all, this is about us. It's true. It is. It's, so. It is. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. But but no, um, if anything, this has inspired me to, to look more into both of these characters. And I actually might purchase yeah. that book. Yeah. 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 It's Fantastic. awesome. There's so much about Maine and not only just Maine as a whole, but specifically like our areas. These are very both of these people very central, are very central close Maine. to where yeah. yeah we, when you hear about uh, Maine most of our time. When you hear about Maine, if you're, you know, from other parts of the country or hell, other parts of the world, if you're from other parts of the world, Maine to you probably seems to be a part of Canada, which we get a lot. Oh yes. Yeah. I've been asked that quite a few times. Yeah, but we're uh, not. Oh, uh, one of our friends got asked if there was w running water in our part of Maine. 
Absolutely yes. not. We don't. We don't live that way. It's no. We use the spring water that comes that comes out of the ground. There's still like, outhouses. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I bathe with dirty leaves for Christ's sake. Like, come on, have some respect for me. <laughs> but so if, if and but you know, like I said, we we also welcome other ideas for episodes. So like, say for instance, you are, you know, a frequent visitor to Maine, even if you come in the winters and you. You know, you, you ski, you snowboard, or you vacation in the summertime. If there's somebody that you'd like us to cover or gather more detail on, we'd be more than happy to do so. So please shoot us an email for anything, um, and yeah. it might inspire a new episode. Just don't be mean. That's all we ask. Oh, I love don't mean. Don't be mean. I'll be mean to you right back. <laughs> right, if you're you going to be mean you to can us, take those. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You'll know if you get an email back and there's the same amount of aggression given to you. It's from Kat. There's a lot of exclusion. And Lainey's, Lainey's like, listen, you know, like, I appreciate what you've said. And like, that's really nice. And thank you for being so informative. I really honor your opinion, but. <laughs> but, but, and then Kat, go fuck yourself. <laughs> oh, I love oh, we it. We balance each other out. Good. I, I well, I mean, balance is important. This is why our friendship has lasted yes. for so long. I can't deal with my shit. I don't oh God, yeah, I just unload it all on you, and you emotionally deal with my crap, and I emotionally deal with yours. And let's, then we don't let's, have to deal with our. Let's own. face with the reality yeah. of it. I emotionally unload on you far more. <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> it's it's what drives me. It's what, yeah. uh, it's what keeps me going. Keeps her going. But. Oh, I also wanted to mention um, the awesome intro music that we have for all of our episodes. I wanted to give a shout out to my very incredible friend, Tommy Signoretti, who is also um, a part of the band Hours North. You guys should definitely check that out on YouTube and Spotify. They're so fantastic. Um, He wrote and performed our intro song, and he did it all on guitar with a broken string. So thank you, Tommy. I love it. Thank I you, Tommy. Appreciate you. Thank I you so, so much. much. And also, Michaela Dennison for finally finishing, or not finally, but uh, finishing up our uh, logo and every, getting that all situated. Yeah, I'm really happy with our logo. Logo, yeah, I'm, I'm re- pretty excited about it. Yeah, so thank you guys. Definitely check them out. Um, check Michaela Dennison out on Instagram and check Tommy and his band Hours North out on YouTube and Spotify. They're fantastic. And this has been a really incredible episode. I'm excited for next week. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, And if there's nothing else to cover, I just want to say thank you guys for tuning in, joining in, listening in, anything that you, anything that you're doing in any manner of how you're doing it and whatever platform you may be listening to it on. We, we may be doing this for us, but it's nice to have you around. It's true. It really is. It means the world to us. And yeah, if you want to check us out on Instagram at Contagious Curiosity Pod or at Kat and Laney, that's K A T A N D L A N E Y. Fantastic. And yeah, thank you guys so much. Cheers. Bye.